0: Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson with his wife Carlotta and daughter Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in.
1: Welcome to More Than Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Robert Jackson. I'm a family practice physician for the last 40 years, and I have as my guest today, uh, Josh Kimbrell, who is actually my senator. He's a senator from Senate District 11 here in South Carolina. Welcome, Josh.
2: Good to be back with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's always my honor to have you as my guest. Uh, My guest would probably be delighted to know that you're a member of the Banking and Insurance Committee uh, in the Senate here in South Carolina. And I've asked Josh if he would come and talk to us a little bit about the effect of all this stimulus spending that's going on in the United States. Uh, Josh, tell me a little bit about your, your training that equips you to be, um, a spokesman and to answer questions about this issue.
2: Well, when I was an undergrad at North Greenville, my, I, I did a bachelor's of arts degree there and kind of a joint degree. I studied English and economics. I did the English piece because I was going to go to law school, ended up not going to law school, going to business school instead. And I studied economics because I've always loved studying the economy and the uh, financial system. And I went to graduate school at Gardner Webb University School of Business, uh, the, the Godbold School of Business there studied uh, studied there in their masters of business administration program and what kind of emphasis an emphasis really on finance and accounting and i worked for 10 years as a commercial banker and a commercial bank executive uh, here in the upstate so i've worked very closely with financial services and banking and uh, the overall economy as it's affected by that industry
1: i got you i got you and then you were elected to the senate what one year ago two years ago
2: uh, yeah, I was elected in November 2020. I, I run a, I run a small business now, I run an aircraft charter company uh, out of Spartburg downtown airports, my office. But I uh, I was elected to the South Carolina Senate in November of last year. And prior to that, I was Spartburg County Republican Party chairman, a Fox News commentator on their weekend uh, program's Fox News National. I did 10 years on talk radio on his radio network. So it's uh, I've been involved in the public policy debate for, for quite a long time.
1: Well, and you're an excellent spokesperson. I've I've listened to you speak on the issues many times, and I have to say you're quite uh, eloquent, always well-informed, and people really enjoy listening to your perspective on the issues, and that's why I like to have you on my uh, radio broadcast and my podcast. So let's go back to talking about the stimulus um, and and how that affects just the everyday average family in America. I, I listen to people uh talking about it and, and I have to admit a lot of my friends are always glad to get a stimulus check, but there's a certain amount of angst, a certain amount of anxiety that people are, are feeling about how this is going to affect the overall economy. So that's what I wanted you to talk about today. Help enlighten my listeners about the impact of all this stimulus Spend it. So take it
2: away. Well, Doctor, one of the one of the people who helped me run my campaigns is one of my closest friends in the world. He's a devout believer in Jesus Christ now and a great family man. But in his younger years, he struggled with some with some substance problems, and he, he told me something one time that I think uh, it was in the context of drug and alcohol abuse that I also think applies to what we're dealing with with stimulus. And he said that drugs and alcohol work really well and make you happy for a short period of time, and then they destroy. And that same exact mentality about how drugs and alcohol for a while can make you happy and for a while can distract you from your underlying problems, but in the end, they destroy you. That is exactly true of this stimulus. You know, when you talk about friends being excited about getting these $700 checks in the mail or $5,000 or whatever amounts they are this week. Uh, yeah, initially it's, it feels good. It's like, this is nice. It's like, you know, I've never done any drugs, but I guess it's kind of like if you're a druggie, a drug addict, you get, a, you get, snort a line of Coke or something, you feel kind of up for a minute. Yeah. But then ultimately that comes back down and then the long term consequences are there. And, and that's where we are with this stimulus right now. We are, we are seeding, we are sowing the seeds of our own economic destruction. And it feels good while we're doing it. That, that's the short answer, because what this is doing is it's driving up the national debt to a point where we're ultimately going to destroy the value of the dollar. And, and it is a tax on the average citizen. That's what people don't see, because particularly the current administration, they'll talk about, well, we want to support the middle class. We want to support working folks and we're not going to have a tax increase on working families. Well, that's just not true. They may not raise the rate of taxes paid by working family, but whenever you spend this much money, it devalues the dollar. And that means every time you and I go to the grocery store, and we buy anything from cornflakes to clothes, it costs more because the government's printing more money to pay for this insane spending. And what that means is the dollars that you earn don't go as far this week as they did last week, or they don't go as far this year as they did last year. I give you an example. This past week, I had a breakfast meeting with a colleague, and he—he and I love to go to the Waffle House. I've always loved the Waffle House for breakfast, and for as long as I can remember, uh, Doctor, I'll go—I'll go there, and you can get the All Star breakfast, and it was like seven dollars and ninety-five cents or something like that. Until this last week, it's nine dollars now. You may say, "Well, that's no big deal. It's only a dollar more. It's a dollar more in in the matter of two months. So, what is it going to be two months from now? It could be ten dollars." And what that means is my my $10 bill that would buy me an all-star breakfast and a coffee back in July will now just buy me the breakfast and not the coffee. So I can buy less with the dollars that I have. So even though you're getting a stimulus check, the overall value of your paycheck is going down because the government's spending like a drunken sailor. And that's an insult to uh, drunken sailors.
1: That's right. Well, now, is that what we're saying when we talk about that word inflation?
2: That's right. Infla. So people hear the word inflation and they think, well, something something's getting bigger. So it sounds good, right? But it's almost it's an inverse relationship when it comes to the economy, when it comes to money. Inflation means the value of the dollars in your pocket go down. Deflation means the value of the dollars in your pocket would go up. So what we're witnessing is inflation. Means and what the best way to think about it is the cost is inflated. The value of the dollars not inflated the costs are. So your dollars are worth less and the things you buy cost more. And that ultimately means that your paycheck cannot keep up with the cost of goods going up. And so your family has to do, you you get more, you get less for more instead of getting more for less with inflation, you get less for more. And it's basically a way that the government taxes you without, you know, you're getting taxed. Ah. And people don't think about that. It's, it's a sneaky little way And when the government wants to spend all this money, but they don't want to raise tax rates, you'll vote them out of office. They just go borrow a bunch of money. Or in the case of the national government, the federal government, they go and print more money. And that means the value of the dollar gets driven down. And so it's kind of like reaching into your pocket stealthily, if you will, and pulling out some of the money that you earn. And people don't realize it until it's too late. We are witnessing right now the single largest tax increase on working families, in the modern history of the United States because of this inflation driven by this agenda.
1: Well, now, is all of this happening because our monetary currency is no longer tied to the gold standard as it was many years ago?
2: Well, I mean, certainly when we decoupled the value of the dollar from the gold standard, which, by the way, happened in 1972 under Richard Nixon, we, we started to see inflation get worse after that. But it's still not like what we're witnessing right now. What we're witnessing right now is truly unprecedented in the modern history of the United States. We've never experienced this before. We've never seen this level of spending. So historically, what happens is even if we don't peg the dollar to, to gold, we will kind of peg it to a percentage, right? We'll say, well, here's what the dollar is worth in 1992, and we don't want it to be uh, we don't want it to, to the value of it to have gone down more than say 20 percent over that period of time so check, historically the federal reserve and the treasury department have been very sensitive to changes in the value of the dollar so while we came off of the gold standard in the sense you could go to a bank and give them a dollar bill and get a piece of gold back in return we still sort of base the currency loosely on a, a fixed standard a gold standard of sorts if you will we're not doing that now. Now we're just making it up. And, and that's where it gets really dangerous. And that's where you start to see wild fluctuations in the value of, of the dollar and the, and the cost of goods. And, and that's why when you talk about inflation, the safety zone, if you will, is somewhere around 1% to 2%. If, if the value of the dollar changes 1% to 2% a year, t- you can usually keep up with that. right? 1% or 2% inflation is pretty standard. So that means over the course of a decade, the value of the dollar may go down 8 to 10%. Well, your the, your wages, your salary usually goes up anywhere between 10 to 12%. So the standard of living is not adversely impacted. In other words, people's paychecks are growing faster than the values going down in value. But what's happening right now is we're starting to see inflation spike. We're starting to see the value of the dollar go down three to four percent per year we might even see it go down as much as five percent per year and there's just no way that pay increases will keep up with that and that's when people start to experience a lifestyle change that's when their lifestyle starts to get crimped and even though you're getting that stimulus check you won't be able to do as much with your everyday paycheck and that's when people's life will be adversely impacted
1: well where did we go wrong i mean what what happened in america that we're getting to this place i mean we're going to be like venezuela If this continues.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, if you go back and look at Venezuela in the early 90s, and and a lot of folks don't take the time to really study history. But if we study history in the early 90s, we would know that in Venezuela, you had a a bustling economy. The average family had a, a nice home, a reliable automobile, adequate food. They had a really first world standard of living. Venezuela was considered, if not the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in all of Latin and South America. And over the course of about 30 years because of socialism, they've destroyed it. So now, instead of being one of the wealthiest countries in the the Western world, Venezuela is among the poorest nations on the planet. The average Venezuelan loses about 10 to 20 pounds per year out of malnutrition. They cannot find enough food and they can't feed their families. No longer do you have adequate automobiles or food or housing. All of those things have been devastated because of socialism. And so when you say, where did we go wrong in America? We went wrong in the same place that Venezuela went wrong. We started trusting uh, that the government was better able to make economic decisions than the private sector could, or that families could. Now, thank God, we're not as far down the road as Venezuela yet and we're still the most powerful economy in the world right this minute but if we continue to do what we're doing and we, we continue to build this savior based uh, economic model wherein we think that the government's smarter than this private sector and they can pick what kind of health care we get and tell us where to go uh, what, what kind of medicine to get or what kind of insurance policy to buy and all this stuff uh, then we're going to ultimately get there and that's we've got a reverse course here we've got a reassert the power of the private sector, shrink the size of government, and rein in the spending.
1: Now, when I was in my freshman economics class at Clemson University, the professor said to us, the market always provides for the future. What did he mean by that?
2: Well, it means that, that, that pretty much what I just said now, which is that the private sector, millions of individuals and hundreds of thousands of private businesses are better able to make decisions about their future and the future of their families than the the bureaucrats in Washington or Columbia. And, and that's what he means by it is the market can usually identify where a need is because there's a profit motive, right? That's right. If, if, if you're going to go open a medical practice where you're not going to put it somewhere where nobody lives, you're going to put it someplace where you're going to get some patients. Just like with my business with air charter. Well, I didn't go buy a plane that people are scared to fly on or can't can't carry any passengers. You get something that people want to travel on. In other words, you're finding a need so you can meet that need, and by meeting that need in the economy, you provide for your own needs. That's the nature of the free enterprise system. Right. But what the what the government's doing is trying to make decisions for all of us, a one size fits all solution, if you will. And we're gonna we're gonna start to experience scarcity and a lack of resources.
1: Yep. My dad told me a long time ago, he said, Son, success in business or ministry is finding a need, and by hard work and creativity, you meet that need. And see, small businesses and churches all over America find needs that need to be met, and by hard work, diligence, and creativity, and in the case of churches, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they go about meeting those needs. And it builds a successful economy and it builds successful ministries in every economy that meets the needs where people live.
2: That's right. At the end of the day, people working hard, using their God given talents, that's what helps you to be successful. And millions of individuals are better able to do that than any government bureaucrat. And we've got to be mindful of that. Unfortunately, well, people have gotten complacent. We, we've bought into the idea that Uncle Sam's going to take care of us, that Uncle Sugar Daddy's going to mail us a check. And, and what I like to remind people, the government doesn't produce anything. They don't make anything. They just take. And so when people say, well, the government gave me money, the government didn't give you any money that it didn't first take from you and others. That's right. The government doesn't produce anything. The government takes uh, from that which is productive, which is the private sector. The more burdensome that the government gets and the bigger that it gets, the more stifling that it is, it ultimately will kill the, the goose that lays the golden eggs that provides uh, the jobs and the opportunity and the standard of living we've become accustomed to, and ultimately even provides funding for the government itself. And and I think that we need to go back to basic economics. In most cases, most folks have never been taught what we're talking about tonight, and that's because we've we've got a, a governmental education system that espouses the notion of uh, the government's the answer to all of our problems, and that, that government can save us from ourselves. When the reality is, government most of the time is the problem, not the solution to the problem.
1: That's correct. Well, you're listening to my guest, Josh Kimbrell, uh, the senator from. Senate District 11 here in the upstate of South Carolina. And we'll be back in just a moment.
0: Hi, this is Bob of Bob Sloan Audio Productions. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast yourself? Do you have a desire to communicate an idea, opinion, or even a hobby or interest you'd like to share with the world? And do you have the communication skill and dedication? If so, let's talk. Send an email and a short description of your idea to bob at bobsloan.com. That's Bob at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E dot com. Now, let's get back to the podcast.
1: All right, we're continuing with my good friend, Senator Josh Kimbrell. And we've been talking about the impact of the stimulus checks on our economy and the average family. And Josh, I'm just going to ask this question. How bad is all of this and how really Adverse is the effect on our economy.
2: Well, the level of spending we've experienced in the first nine months, eight months of the Biden administration is unprecedented. Truly, there's no there's no comparison. We've never seen an American administration spend this much money in an entire presidential term, much less spend this much money in eight months of the first term. We've never experienced that. We've never experienced that before. And and I, I just. I'm concerned that this situation is going to get to the point of no return. And that's that's where we are. We're, we're very close to that. We've, we've now seen the administration spend $8 trillion in eight months. That's over a $1 trillion per month. Now they're proposing $5 trillion in additional spending with this infrastructure plan. And, and the reality is, uh, Dr. Jackson, what this is going to lead to is hyperinflation. And the last time we saw anything close to that, was under Jimmy Card in the late 70s, early 80s, you very well could see interest rates jump back up to 10 to 12% for, for a primary residence. You know, right now the housing market's really hot because people are trying to take advantage of these historically low rates. And so you've got two percent interest rates out there, and people are buying four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar houses where maybe a year ago they could only afford cut two hundred thousand dollar house. So the market's up. If you're a seller right now, more power to you you'll make a killing. If you're buying right now, you're buying at the height of the market. But if you don't lock in that rate for the long term, I really think we're going to see severe interest rate spikes. I think we're going to see significant inflation. And the and the way to tamp down inflation, by the way, to suck up all that extra money in the system is to raise rates. The, the problem is back in the 70s and 80s, the federal government didn't owe $20 trillion to its creditors. And so they could raise the rates to 12% or 13% to try to Slow down inflation and get the economy back under control. They can't do that now because if you think about 1%, a uh, 1% interest rate on a $21 trillion debt is over $221 billion. That means the federal government, just to pay interest on the credit card, not even to begin to pay down the debt, is looking at over a quarter of a trillion dollars, $220 plus billion dollars a year. Even at a 1% interest rate, if they raise the rates even to 4 or 5%, you're talking eight, nine 900000000000 billion, which is a third of the entire federal budget just to pay interest on the debt. So then that begs the question, how do they get out of this? Well, the only way to get out of it is to print more money to buy our own debt, which means the value of the dollar continues to fall. Everything you buy is going to continue to go up. So you literally could be looking at a situation if we don't slow this down where people are going to the Waffle House, to use my example earlier of going to the Waffle House, it's 9 bucks now for the All-Star Breakfast, where it used to be seven fifty or whatever the number was. It might be 12 or $13 by next year or the year after that if we don't slow this down and, and stop raising the debt ceiling and stop borrowing money to pay for projects we don't need.
1: And who does that hurt the most when it comes well, to the inflation?
2: Poorest. It'll hurt the poorest Americans. I mean, if it, look, if you make $400,000 a year, uh, paying ten bucks for an all-star breakfast at the Waffle House doesn't hurt you that much. I mean, you may notice it, but it's not going to change your lifestyle. But if you're making thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and you're taking four or five hundred dollars home a week, to, you know, on, on top of paying your mortgage or rent to try to eat out and, and feed your family, that that two or three dollars difference makes a big difference. The cost of a gallon of gasoline instead of being two dollars being five dollars really hurts a person on a fixed income. So inflation. Contrary to what our liberal friends like to talk about they say, oh, we're for the little guy. If they were for the little guy, they wouldn't be proposing $5 trillion spending bills because the little guy is the guy that gets hurt the most when you have runaway inflation and spikes in interest rates. That hurts the, the poorer family, the middle income family more than anybody else. And it's it's actually immoral, really.
1: Yes, I agree. And see, I see that in my medical practice every day where I have patients who come in who live on a a very low fixed income as disabled patients. And they may take five, six, or even 10 medications. And as long as they're generic medications that only cost them 4 to $10 per prescription, if they have to take a name brand medication where the deductible is like $40 or $50 for that prescription, they'll look at me and say, "Dot Jackson, I-, I can't do that. Uh, I can't buy groceries if I have to pay forty dollars for that prescription, and that's if inflation hits them and their grocery bill uh goes up even twenty five percent they can't buy medication they have to choose between medicines and groceries and
2: well that that's what I was going to say you're you're then picking between your prescription and paying for food that's, that's right. literally what that means, yes
1: exactly. And and some of them are already experiencing that. And they're already coming to me and saying, I, I can't afford these medications because the gas costs more, groceries cost more, my rent's gone up. And I'm sorry, doc, I can't pay for all these medications. So inflation is already hitting my low income patients.
2: And it's likely only going to get worse. I mean, look, I'm reminded that when we talk about, I've been asked before, people ask me stuff like this all the time. They'll say, well, do you believe that that God is a is a Republican or a Democrat? Do you believe God's a liberal or a conservative? And, of course, I believe God transcends all of that. I don't think God is a – it's like Abraham Lincoln was once asked. said, Mr. President, do you believe that you're on God's side? He said, well, the question really isn't – or I said, is God on your side? He said, well, the question really isn't whether God is on my side. The question is, am I on God's side? That's right. And that's what we should be asking as Republicans and Democrats or independents. It's not whether God is on, quote unquote, our side, but are we on his side? And the Bible affirms the free enterprise system. In spite of what our liberal friends like to say, I I always love that people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, they don't want to talk about the Bible or the scriptures when we talk about abortion or the value of life. They don't want to hear that. They'll say, well, no, you you can't bring the Bible into it. But then when they want to talk about a social welfare program or taking over health care, they'll start quoting the Bible left and right. So it's selective. They'll quote the Bible when they think it fits the agenda. And one of the verses, one of the passages most often misrepresented, miscontextualized, uh, mis- misquoted is in the book of Acts where the early church talks about taking their resources and pooling those resources and that nobody had any need. There's a couple, and people have said, well, that is, that's, that shows that the Bible endorses socialism. Not at all. Of course it doesn't endorse socialism. What that says is people out of their own personal choice in the community of faith chose to donate to a, to, to their church fund, if you will, to take care of those in need. didn't say anything about the government taking the money. didn't right. say anything about the government forcing it. It was people taking care of people. And we they did so that.
1: of their own free will.
2: Of oh, their own free will. That's right. But if you look at the Bible as a whole, if we're if we're going to do the Nancy Pelosi Chuck Schumer thing and try to justify our economic theory, by reading the Bible, well, in Exodus it says not to covet, not to steal. That's right. Okay, th- th- those are in the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy, the Bible affirms the value of the pro- the rights to private property. In the Book of Matthew, even with the parable of the talents, uh, the Lord is affirming there the the, the, uh, the concept of frugality of saving and investing That's right. and trying to, and trying to save up for the future. So if you take the old and New Testament and you look throughout all these passages, the Bible endorses private property rights, the Bible endorses frugality and saving money. the Bible endorses in- investment. The, the Bible endorses the idea of generosity and not being covetous and stealing. Well, that means the Bible doesn't endorse socialism because the socialist agenda is the opposite of all of that. It says there is no private property. It's all about envy and greed. It's about the opposite of investment and capitalism. The Bible truly, which I believe is God's word, as you do, endorses the free enterprise capitalist system. So socialism inevitably as all things that stand against God's word will do, will lead us further away from God's design for humanity, which is to, be, uh, is to enjoy our freedom and enjoy life with him and with our families. Socialism will crush the American dream. It will steamroll the American dream, and the only way to preserve the American dream is to affirm what the Bible says, and that is that free enterprise and ca- a capitalist system checked by private morality is the way to go and that socialism will destroy us.
1: I hear you. I hear you. Well, that's good preaching there, brother. <laughs> ah <Yeah. laughs> uh, some good some good Bible teaching and some good preaching. Well, we have about oh let's see, one minute left. Would you like to conclude with any any final statements?
2: Well, I believe that if the if the United States economy is gonna be saved, the only way to save the US economy is the same way to save the country. And that is to believe that our rights and our freedoms and our hope comes from God and from his word. And as I just summarized, the socialist agenda is an evil agenda. I mean Karl Marx is the father of modern socialism and Karl Marx openly said that Christianity was a mildew that should be scraped off society. And when Karl Marx died, he was he was buried in the Highgate Cemetery in London, England, which was at the at that time of his death in the late 1800s it was known as the Hotbed of satanism and satan worship it was a cemetery where satanists were known to be buried in london karl marx was a was a was an evil man that's right and the agenda he espoused was an evil anti-god agenda and america cannot embrace socialism and remain a free country and i would say that no christian can truly say they are a christian socialist that is a contradiction in terms that is an oxymoron you cannot be a christian and a socialist period
1: i hear you well Josh, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your input. And I'm really thankful for your concluding Bible instruction. I know that my guests will value that greatly. You've been listening to More Than Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Jackson, and my guest has been Senator Josh Kimball.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information on how to contact the Jackson family to schedule a speaking engagement or how to obtain Dr. Jackson's books, go to jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast was produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production.